getting reliable high-speed connectivity continues to be a challenge for enterprises. But things are changing. Private sector innovation and government support are working to advance America's long-time leadership in wireless technologies. Spectrum sharing initiatives like CBRS are disruptive. DOD's investment in 5G testbeds is promising, and the recent decision by FCC to break free 100 MHz spectrum in the 3.45 GHz band is exciting. But how all these initiatives will help enterprises accelerate digital innovation? Let's find out. Hi guys, this is your host Ashish Jain and you're listening to the Alignment Podcast where we go beyond the buzzwords and connect the dots between technology and its business impact. Today's guest is going to help us weave through the maze of shared, flexible use and licensed mid-band 5G spectrum that is coveted for private business networks and how the latest 5G testbeds at the Department of Defense will benefit the private sector. Dr. Eric Berger is a professor and the founder and director of the Security and Software Engineering Research Center at Georgetown University. Before Georgetown, he served as the assistant director at the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy. He also served as a CTO of FCC and led several public and private network equipment and enterprise software companies. You might want to thank him as he played an essential role in implementing the regulations to remediate illegal robocalls, also called as spam calls. Dr. Berger also contributed to the Secure 5G and Beyond Act and led the program to identify and transfer 100 megahertz of 5G mid-band spectrum from federal DoD use to the private sector. Eric, welcome to the show. I'm pleased to have you join us. Ashish, it is wonderful to be with you again. Great. So we have known each other for uh, what good ten plus years ever since you know from the SIP days when you were uh, leading the FCC for this robocall initiatives. That that's right. You know, way way back to uh, to when you were up in Gaithersburg with some interesting companies that who knew was actually a security company, and uh, I was doing media processing. Yeah, that was great great times. <laughs> Yeah, so since then, you've done a lot in 5G and, uh, you know, cybersecurity. Uh, tell us a little bit, of, little bit about what you've done at the White House and FCC and what's going on in this whole private network space. Sure. Well, I'll start with the, the private networks. I mean, it's not exactly a new concept. You know, LTE has a concept of private networks. And uh, in fact, one of the most famous is FirstNet. Uh, we also see it in like the mining industry and it kind of works. You know, the good news is you can leverage common equipment, especially the handsets. The problem is it's really hard to implement. You need to kind of look and act like an operator. And, and this is where, you know, 5G has uh, an opportunity. It's that it makes private networks first class citizens. You know, not only can we leverage radios and user equipment, but we can leverage self-configured modes like Wi-Fi 6 and CBRS. Uh, and as you mentioned in the introduction, CBRS is uh, particularly interesting. So like if you're in a rural region with few neighbors, you know, you might be able to use Wi-Fi because there's you know, little interference. Uh, but if you need more reliability, you could use CBRS unlicensed. Again, if you're in that uh, region without many uh, entities contending for that spectrum. But the magic happens if you're in a more industrial region or have mission-critical wireless needs. Uh, in that case, you could get a priority license to get a guaranteed quality of service 
so long as the federal user does not need the spectrum, which actually means you're, you could be out of luck if you're near a Navy port, uh, but if you're kind of in the, the middle of the country, uh, that's not likely to happen. Uh, and in fact, an example of that was uh, when I was watching the CBRS auction last year, uh, one of the most expensive licenses, uh, and the way we measure this is per megahertz popu per population is, you know, how much spectrum you get per person. Um, and one of the most, in fact, it was the most expensive license measured by megahertz population was in West Texas. And I was thinking, who's in West Texas? What's there? So I looked at a satellite image and it showed that the, the license was covering an oil field. Yeah. So like there was almost no population, which, you know, that uh, kind of drives that uh, ratio through the roof because the population is near zero. Uh, in fact, the dollar value of the bid was relatively small, but that small investment meant the operator of that oil field could have guaranteed wireless quality of service, probably better than what a commercial operator could have offered with LTE for considerably less money. And, and especially thinking of the enterprise, kind of proof of uh, the value of CBRS is if you look at most FCC auctions, they maybe have tens of bidders bidding for these large, expensive uh, blocks of, of spectrum. Uh, in the CBRX auction, there were over 200 winning bidders many of whom had never participated in an FCC auction before. Oh, that's, a, that's a great point, because definitely the structure itself is so disruptive of the shared spectrum. Uh, it allowed many uh, you know, smaller uh, WISPs uh, to participate in, and anyone in enterprises to participate in likes of the oil field uh, you, example you gave. But looking back, right, uh, on the CBRS, because CBRS, the idea has been promoted for many years, and um, the, the GA license was always available uh, without, you know, going through uh, a bid. Do you, uh, I mean, this is purely your perspective or opinion. Um, I, I was personally hoping that there will be a lot more enterprises participating in it than we actually saw in the auction. What was your opinion? Yes, I, I I would have expected that on the one hand. On the other hand, as you said, the GA, uh, and for your audience, the, the, think of that as like Wi-Fi. You know, you, you just uh, buy the unit and register it and turn it on. Uh, you don't need uh, a license. It also does mean you have limited power. Uh, and it's kind of a similar concept to Wi-Fi that at very low power, it's unlikely to leave very far outside of your building. And so uh, we don't have to worry as much about interference. Um, you know, one thing that uh, may be the case, and this is just purely speculation, is that, you know, GA was good enough, you know, that, that they uh, didn't need, uh, you know, the protection that comes with uh, what we call a PAL license, this priority access license, which, you know, basically if someone with a, priority license, you know, in effect, turns it on, then uh, the, the general users need to, to basically get out of the way. Uh, so that's one thing that I, that I think may be driving that, uh, is that the need didn't materialize, which, by the way, would explain why a lot of the bidders were WISPs, 
because they are outdoors. They are all about coverage and they really needed the higher power that the priority license would, would give them. Plus they want to be able to have some quality of service, uh, offer to their customers. You know, why would an enterprise pay for service that might work maybe, right? You know, they want service that works. Uh, so I think that was one of the drivers. The other, of course, is uh, uh, complexity. Uh, you know, how many of these companies know what the FCC is other than, uh, you know, what they read in the newspaper when the FCC does something uh, uh, controversial? You know, they're more about uh, making their car parts or uh, industrial controls or whatever it is they build. Uh, and, and many, you know, unless they had an integrator uh, helping them uh, with that process, they, they probably didn't know. And again, if it's working, probably didn't care that they had that opportunity. You know, that's a, that's a very important point. The awareness by itself is they could participate, although, you know, um, there's there's definitely you know uh, organizations that have dedicated teams just like IT teams on on these things, but those tend to be like bigger organizations, uh, utility companies, oil companies, uh, you know that they have a very specific need, and 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 in one way or the other, they had already been invested in the concept of private networks, either licensing those technologies directly from the operators or having some other sort of a spectrum, like utility companies have been investing in 900 megahertz of spectrum uh, to build their own smart grids, right? So uh, there are companies that are already aware of uh, these kind of concepts, and there are a few new companies um, that, that started to participate into this. So there is a, there is a lot of momentum uh, around private network deployments now. I mean, uh, numbers are anywhere from, you know, 200 plus to 500 plus, either trials or deployments going on. And they span across schools, smart cities, you know, industrial sector, as you mentioned, public venues and more. Um, but at the same time, the technology and the business models are still evolving, if, uh, in, in my view. Um, so... Definitely, CBRS is a big catalyst in all this momentum. But what are some of the fundamental changes required in the government's approach to spectrum access to accelerate such private network innovation? Yeah, yeah, that that's great, uh, great question. Because yeah, spectrum is the lifeblood of modern internet access, modern network access. Um, and the thing is, at this point in time, just about all of the spectrum is allocated from 9,000 hertz to over 450 gigahertz. Uh, and, and so that's where, you know, there, there's been a lot of talk. And in fact, I'll, I'll touch upon the utilities in a moment because uh, they're an interesting case. Uh, because they kind of touch upon this point that, you know, we can move inefficient users elsewhere uh, and, and that's a way of getting more spectrum. It's basically opening the vacated spectrum for better use in the public interest. And, uh, uh, you know, examples of that would be like the recent C-band auction uh, where, uh, you know, the, the winning bidders are basically paying the incumbent satellite operators to uh, uh, either move to, to different uh, spectrum bands or uh, to the users of the, those satellite services to go to terrestrial, uh, maybe fiber-based uh, uh, networks, uh, because it was just inefficient and that uh, it's a more economic, better use to use that spectrum uh, for uh, broadband access. 
Um, we can make more spectrum usable. So like, you know, we can't make spectrum, but uh, if you go back just 10 years ago, people were saying, oh, you can't really use spectrum over uh, like 12 gigahertz for communications and you absolutely couldn't use it for mobile. That would never happen. Uh, and that's the, uh, you know, 28 gigahertz spectrum, 60 gigahertz spectrum. Uh, we basically invented uh, a lot of antenna science to, to make that possible. So that opened that spectrum for communications use. We can share spectrum in the time domain, uh, like CBRS. Uh, you know, it is a kind of spectrum sharing because the federal users have priority, but they uh, will defer to the priority access license uh, people when they're not using it. And priority access license people will defer to the general users uh, when the priority people aren't using it. Um, and the other thing we can do is more efficiently sp share spectrum. And again, that's, that's new science. Like, you know, what did I do when I was at the White House? Uh, one was, you know, as you'd mentioned, that three, four, five uh, gigahertz band was, you know, figuring out how to do sharing, uh, but in a new way. Uh, even though CBRS was just released, uh, you know, it was just auctioned, just rolled out uh, with, with the licensing last year, uh, you know, it took almost seven years to do that. And, uh, you know, believe me, both the priority users and the general users are very aware of the federal users in that space. Uh, you know, that, that band is a, a little bit of, uh, yeah, you can use it except when you can't. Um, and with that experience, we were looking uh, in, in this uh, uh, mid-band uh, 3.450 gigahertz uh, spectrum to make it look to non-federal users like there were no federal users there. Uh, you know, there are some places where, you know, they're still very aware of the federal users, but for the most part and for most of the U.S., uh, it, it really opened up the spectrum. And, you know, in a, in, in a sense, because in a time of emergency, the DOD unquestionably gets used to the spectrum, which is, by the way, the same in all the spectrum in the U.S., we wanted to have a simpler approach than CBRS. And, and I think we did that, uh, you know, if you look at the, the auction parameters that NTIA published uh, uh, late last year. Uh, the other thing we do, though, is, you know, kind of on that make more, uh, which is uh, one of my roles was to set the administration's R&D budget priorities uh, for uh, communications and cyber. And, and, you know, it's not surprising that this is a bipartisan area. There was a real bipartisan push for spectrum research, uh, particularly for spectrum sharing. Uh, you know, while while I was there, uh, DARPA concluded the Spectrum Collaboration Challenge, or SE2, and that showed that through collaborative AI, it's possible to fill in kind of the spaces uh, between users. And the thing is, it, it wasn't only looking at, you know, AI versus AI, uh, but they had a lot of scenarios where there were LTE, you know, plain old licensed legacy 4G uh, spectrum systems. And they found they could squeeze a lot of bandwidth uh, without, you know, ba basically the inverse of what I just mentioned for the uh, 5G uh, mid-band that, 
the LTE users were unaware of all of these AIs, basically nominally using their spectrum. Uh, the NSF has got uh, the Spectrum and Wireless Innovation Enabled by Future Technologies Program, or SWIFT, and the Platforms for Advanced Wireless Research, or POWER. And uh, soon, uh, they're going to be announcing the award of the Spectrum Innovation Initiative National Center for Wireless Spectrum Research. And, and all of these are focusing on using the spectrum we have more efficiently. Um, and the thing is, you know, you mentioned, you know, new business models. I think the opening of inexpensive access to spectrum can really change our existing model of these really expensive large blocks of, uh, of spectrum in, in regions that you know are so complicated they kind of have to be handed to carriers and the carriers actually do the spectrum management amongst their uh, customers that we can have more autonomy to have more uh, models like Wi-Fi 6 or uh, CBRS general uh, access uh, kinds of modes and you know in the example of the, the mid-band 5G uh, 3.45 because of the interaction with the federal user, you know, that probably will still be a carrier. So we're not talking about the end of carrier networks. It's just uh, creating more entrepreneurship. Um, and then, yeah, one last thing on the uh, uh, things that the administration did is uh, we allocated well over half a billion dollars for the DOD to deploy 5G test beds. And this basically was to jumpstart the chicken and egg problem of uh, if you don't have uh, advanced network, then application developers aren't going to develop to it because there are no customers. And if there are no interesting applications that demand these 5G networks, then you know the network operators don't upgrade or build out their 5G network. So those were a lot of the things we were doing to kind of uh, build, you know, create more spectrum effectively and 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 uh, uh, encourage the build out of these advanced networks. And that's a lot of lot of hard work, uh, Eric. There in you know thinking this through in the right way, I would say, um, because you're right. Spectrum is the lifeblood. At the same time, it's it's fixed, and you just have to figure out how do we get smarter about utilizing them or identifying new technologies to use what we have thought. Uh, was unusable before. So I I heard as you were speaking, I was following a pattern. <laughs> uh, and I said, okay, is the pattern going forward is all about a shared economy. And, and we've seen shared economy works in so many different fields, right? Um, if you pick Uber as an example, and that might not directly relate to this particular, you know, um, anecdote, but it changed the world in terms of how we think fixed assets that are owned by, uh, you know, limited entities, uh, licenses to run cabs, for example, in that case, now being crowdsourced, we bring your own uh, car and be part of a network and start providing services that people care in a, in a way, you know, that is orchestrated centrally, uh, to make life easier for other people and become more entrepreneurial to your point. Um, it probably is a stretch of an example maybe, but is that what we will see 
more such use cases of how the spectrum will come out i mean although you know c band didn't go that route even the 3.45 uh, gigahertz that you that you mentioned is does say uh, things about flexible use but it's not really complete spectrum sharing although it's it's sharing with dod but is there more innovation coming likes of cbrs maybe simpler that will enable uh, entities beyond the, the big telcos to participate in the wireless innovation for digital transformation? Yeah, I, I definitely believe so, although I, I, I don't have my crystal ball to say, you know, what it'll necessarily look like. But, uh, you know, again, I'll, I'll, you know, fall back on the National Science Foundation and, and DARPA. Uh, you know, CBRS... Uh, is the result of NSF-funded research about uh, 12 years ago. And then uh, we have actually a brand new solicitation from NSF called RINGS, which is the Resilient and Intelligent Next-G Systems Program. Uh, and on the one hand, kind of the focus of RINGS is more on uh, the resiliency part, uh, but I believe that, you know, there's going to be results of that research that um, are going to create whole new opportunities and, and, and new uh, business opportunities. Because if you have resiliency either in, how should we say, new spectrum, and you just set it up kind of like we uh, did a little bit with C-band, a lot with CBRS, uh, a tiny bit with 345, uh, that resiliency means you could probably have other users, lower priority users, more opportunistic users, uh, or it could mean that, you know, whole cloth, um, uh, we're going to you know have more of a, a DARPA SC2 model of uh, really, really intelligent radios that you don't need to license it at all. And, and they just kind of figure it out. And, you know, some hybrid models where, uh, and, and this is kind of the CBRS model. You don't need to invoke your PAL license unless you need to. Uh, you know, you could let everybody be there in uh, GA mode. And when you just have uh, your use, you're noticing either that, uh, you know, your, your, your throughput is degraded or, you know, you're about to... Uh, you know, turn on that industrial process that that really requires uh, guaranteed low latency. Then, then you invoke your license. But that means for all that other time, uh, you know, a whole bunch of other users can can use the spectrum. You know, that that I think could be a, a, a win for everybody. I hope uh, we get to a time where there will be multi-operator RANs. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> so you touched upon you know, half a billion dollar invested uh, by DOT on the 5G test paths. And there's some really interesting use cases, uh, likes of augmented reality, virtual reality, smart warehousing. And I know you were part of deciding about these test paths, I, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Can you talk a little bit about those use cases? How do you come up with those use cases? And where do you see, you know, an effort like this helping uh, the commercial world eventually in terms of utilizing uh, the results of this in the commercial world or private sectors? Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and you know, 
if you think about it, at every generational wireless access jump, there, there's a tension. You know, the, the wireless industry has a vision of what the new generation of, of wireless technology will bring. But unless there are applications that leverage the capabilities of the new generation, then, you know, the operators have little incentive to upgrade to the new network. Uh, you know, 1G to 2G was easy because the application was voice and 2G could, uh, you know, basically have a lot more voice capacity for the same spectrum. Uh, 2.5G to 3G was, was kind of hard. Uh, because the application was small data and more efficient voice. You know, BlackBerry kind of came with the application, but, but you know, they were pretty much a niche. Uh, and, and the more efficient voice that 3G brought over, you know, 2 and 2.5G two and was not quite enough to drive the upgrade for many operators. Some, you know, a lot of operators did it because they, you know, kind of figured it would be good. But uh, for many, you know, it was hard to justify. Uh, and then Apple released the original 3G iPhone. Uh, and that demonstrated the usefulness of data access for wireless users. And, and because of that, you know, the 3G to 4G transition was somewhat easy because, you know, Apple and Google and others delivered the application, the web, raw internet access through applications from an easy to use app store and, and the handsets that, that made that use easy. I would offer we're kind of back in the same place as the two and a half G to three G transition as we're going from, you know, four G LTE to five G. You know, why would a network operator build a five G network if there are no applications that leverage five G? And likewise, why would an app developer create a five G app if there are no or there are only limited five G networks? Um, and basically, the administration's investment thesis was to satisfy three things. Uh, you know, first and foremost, it was to satisfy the real operational needs of the DoD. This was not a, a giveaway uh, for the wireless industry. Uh, th this is, you know, a real bona fide uh, Department of Defense research initiative. Uh, so that was the first uh, kind of uh, thing that needed to be satisfied. The second was we wanted to build out operational 5G networks for the DoD. So that's why they're you know, called the test beds. But third and, and, and you know, most important from a policy perspective was seeding the market for 5G applications. Uh, now, if you look at the awards and some of the newly announced solicitations, only two or three of them are about uh, what I call guns and bullets, you know, the pure warfighting DOD mission. The rest are enterprise applications, uh, or they can be easily adapted to civilian enterprise applications. I mean, a smart warehouse is a smart warehouse, whether it's stocking toilet paper for troops or toilet paper for households. You know, logistics is logistics, whether it's moving rifles in boxes or brooms in boxes. Um, Augmented reality for vehicle maintenance is augmented reality for vehicle maintenance, whether it's for a Humvee or a Hummer. And, uh, you know, one of the latest ones to be announced, uh, telerobotic uh, surgery. It's, it's telemedicine, whether it's in a field hospital or a rural healthcare facilities. And, and the point is, is that the DOD needs these applications. Um, so, again, it, it, it makes sense that uh, they're getting uh, funded through DOD. Um, uh, and then having the applications prove the value of the 5G network 
that we believe will have the 5G network driving new and, and basically the unknown applications. You know, in retrospect, people say, oh, yeah, you know, we deployed uh, LTE to create Uber and uh, to create uh, Grubhub and, and to uh, uh, create uh, like a mobile version of Zoom. Well, no. Uh, you know, in a sense, the iPhone uh, pushed the, you know, carriers to do LTE and then with it out there and, and the location services and things like that, you know, that drove the uh, entrepreneurs to create these new unknown applications. Uh, so that's a great point because, you know, location-based services is a great example. You know, a lot of, a lot of innovation happened around that. So if you have to pick... Uh, Eric, one or two things, you know, in 5G, similar to, you know, location-based services or, or, or something else that will, you know, really pick up uh, for the new generation of the innovators and developers, application developers to see, huh, okay, so this makes sense. Now I see the value of 5G that I can create a completely new set of experiences and, and applications that was not possible before with uh, with 4G. Yeah, and again, it's kind of like when we uh, rolled out. In fact, rolled out 3G. I, I think 5G is is possibly going to deliver on one of the promises of 3G. And, and again, this fits very much in uh, you know a, a lot of the enterprise focus of, of some of your listeners. Uh, is that 3G was supposed to open up the carrier network for enterprise applications, that, that you could have a, a tighter binding between uh, enterprise communications applications and the network. And uh, to, to a limited extent that that was, you know, was made possible. This is where we get kind of the Twilio's of the world. Uh, but, but there's a lot of potential there that's been untapped that, that I think uh, 5G and, and new network interfaces and architectures will enable. Uh, positioning uh, is also another uh, area of potential uh, breakthrough innovation. Uh, right now, today, the network pretty much relies, believe it or not, on GPS for a lot of its... Uh, uh, location information, GPS, and, and like Wi-Fi beaconing. Uh, and in 5G, particularly the high-band 5G, the radios themselves uh, you know, have a lot more accurate information of, of where the device is uh, with respect to, to where the radio is. Uh, and so there could be new applications that leverage that uh, more reliable positioning information. Uh, and then, of course, the, the architecture of uh, distributed computing uh, very close to, again, where the radios are, uh, could open up uh, you know, a whole new host of, of applications to leverage uh, uh, that, that the, and again, I think more, maybe in a hybrid cloud kind of model where you know, the enterprise may have their own compute, but also as on-demand needed uh, uh, leveraging compute that's deployed by uh, carriers, or more likely, if you look at uh, uh, you know some initiatives like uh, what Amazon has going on in Google, where they're teaming with carriers. So it's not necessarily a carrier cloud, but the more familiar 
uh, enterprise provided cloud uh, that we see from AWS or Google or, or Microsoft, uh, uh, you know, makes for uh, the potential for, for a host of new applications that uh, we need the entrepreneurs to step in and create. That's very true. And we hope, uh, you mentioned Twilio, and I always say that, um, is we just hope that 5G makes the the network programmable and to a level, to a similar uh, level like uh, the CPaaS, the, the communication platform as a service, opened up the, the communication application uh, and embedding that and opening it for the 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 developers to you know drive innovation there's a lot of innovation happened um over the over the years and 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 and, and, and sadly enough the the network is is not there yet um in terms of uh combining the potential of network and the potential of application programmability to come together uh to drive such innovation um likes of you know ar vr computer vision all those things are yet to be seen i hope uh, uh the investments that dod is making and of course not just government but there's a lot of private investments happening in this area as well uh prove the point and uh, we see mass adoption of these things that's right that was a lot of uh, again kind of back to the dod case um I doubt that you know the, the money that DoD awarding is paying for all the R and D that's going into these uh, new applications. Uh, but what it does do is encourage uh, venture capital uh, and private equity to say, okay, you know, basically we've got a partner in the investment side. And it's not just, oh, I'll get to sell to DOD. It's, oh, you know, I can have a much larger return here because, again, the, these applications aren't, most of them are not DOD specific. They're, they're, they're general enterprise applications. And so a much, much larger market. And likewise, you know, you can believe that the entrepreneurs at these companies have knocked on the doors of uh, you know, enterprises in the U.S., but, you know, the enterprises are rightly saying, you know, that sounds really interesting, but why am I going to risk, uh, you know, my warehouse operations to, to this startup? Uh, much more powerful to say, uh, yeah, and we proved this system in uh, San Diego or, or Albany, Georgia. Uh, you know, we proved this VR training system uh, in fact, under the you know the most rigorous. That's one where I say it's a crossover because no, I don't think people are going to be selling uh, battlefield simulation uh, VR. Maybe as a game they might, but you know probably not to the level of detail uh, that the military is using. But you know you can see that technology being used for other you know high tactile, high fidelity uh, virtual reality environments and. Uh, it brings, you know, the, to bear our very efficient capital markets, which, you know, we're talking about, uh, you know, probably by the time it's done, DOD will spend, you know, three quarters of a billion, maybe even a billion dollars over, uh, you know, say three years on these test labs. Uh, that is a fraction of 
the third largest network equipment provider's R&D budget, right? And the, <laughs> and the third largest is like one-tenth the size of the largest. So, you know, the U.S. government is not going to fund the, you know, the wireless industry, but we can take the higher risk, the risks that uh, private capital, uh, you know, reasonably doesn't take to kind of de-risk it so that they're more than eager to, to start funding, uh, again, orders of magnitude more than the federal government could possibly spend. That's a great point. Uh, it's a very different way of looking at it. So talking about investments, um, what's happening beyond 5G? Is there more coming? Oh, yeah, there's more coming. And there, there are a lot of interesting things going on. Um, you know, one of the things I worked on both at the FCC and at the White House was uh, how to deal with untrusted network elements uh, in, in our networks. And, you know, uh, network elements from, from manufacturers that were, you know, under the control of uh, basically repressive regimes. And on the one hand, you know, it was kind of a benefit, the fact that uh, our concern was not a protectionist trade issue hiding as a security concern, because there are no major... North American wireless equipment manufacturers, right? You know, we were not trying to protect our national champions because we we didn't have one. The largest uh, company in that uh, uh, segment is almost at a billion dollars of revenue uh, compared to uh, around 20 and 25 for Nokia and Ericsson and well over 100 billion for uh, Huawei. Uh, you know, we, we clearly, you know, didn't have a, a, a company to protect. Um, so that made that part of my job easy. But on the other hand, it did beg the question of why uh, we didn't have a major manufacturer. You know, it didn't answer whether that was important and what to do about it. And now, many have written on why we lost our domestic manufacturers. So I won't talk about that. Uh, and, and from a national security perspective, given the importance of a connected society, it's, it's clear that it is important that we and our our partners, uh, you know, uh, whether North American, uh, European, Asian, you know, that we have a, a strong manufacturing base. You know, the options we considered for what to do ranged from uh, trying to match our adversaries' massive and probably illegal subsidies to their domestic champion. Uh, as well as repatriating formerly American equipment manufacturers. But, you know, we believe that that was not practical. Uh, I think that would have been a race to the bottom. Uh, you know, how much subsidy money can we hand out? How fast? And in fact, even then, it's not clear that it would win uh, going head to head. But, you know, academia invented, again, this is more NSF uh, funding from about a decade ago, uh, industries then started to adopt, and then government supported a new concept that really better reflected our national and our partners' strengths and values. And, and this is uh, uh, the Open Radio Access Network, or Open RAN. And if you think about it, you know we are really good at entrepreneurship and uh, industrial coopetition and baking values like privacy, individual liberty, and security into our products. So instead of going head to head with massive state controlled uh, behemoths focused on controlling their citizenry, 
We respond instead with a massively distributed, free market decided, open and transparent architecture. Uh, and besides initiatives such as the Open Rand Policy Coalition and Terragraph, uh, industry, government, and academia in North America is coalescing to, to leapfrog our rivals through uh, what we call the Next G Alliance. Uh, yeah, this is uh, a group put together by ADIS, uh, which is the North American founding organizational partner for 3GPP, amongst other things. Um, yeah, this, this group has almost 50 companies and universities participating already in coming up with a roadmap for leadership in 6G and beyond. Uh, in fact, I'm pleased to announce that uh, literally today as we're recording this podcast, uh, Addis uh, announced the award of the Technical Program Office to the Virginia Tech Advanced Research Center, uh, and that I will be uh, under contract through Georgetown to be the Technical Program Director of this initiative. And, and what we're doing is... Oh, wow. Congratulations, first yeah, of all, yeah. Eric. Uh, and, and we're looking at wholly new approaches for like Green G. Uh, you know, sustainability is really important. And this is both uh, figuring out how to lower power consumption for wireless uh, and at the same time, how wireless can reduce energy usage. As you said, you know, like the utility industry is a huge user of private networking because it makes their operations more efficient. Uh, we're looking at social and economic needs, you know, why we need 6G for the public interest and applications, you know, what needs, like you asked, you know, what will the network offer? Well, we're also looking at, well, what could the network possibly offer? What would be useful in a post-5G world? Uh, we're looking at technology. So, you know, what technologies need to be invented or refined to deliver these capabilities? And probably the largest group is Spectrum. Uh, you know, looking at Spectrum access, management, sharing, standards, and long-term needs. Uh, so, you know, this program, the next G, Alliance uh, and, uh, you know, very uh, innovatively, uh, you can find it on the web at nextgalliance.org. Uh, you know, it's just getting started, uh, getting a lot of traction in uh, industry, academia and government. And I think this is where, you know, it's not Eric is deciding what is uh, 6G and beyond, but really getting a lot of smart people in the room. Again, this concept of uh, North America is really good at entrepreneurship. So get the entrepreneurs and the carriers and the users all together to uh, hash out you know, a roadmap for where investment will be most leveraged and uh, you know, create these new business models and business opportunities. Oh, wow, that's that's amazing. So, is there a roadmap to it already in terms of what what the what the initiative looks like to focus on? You already mentioned energy efficiency and you know new techs to be invested, and of course the spectrum sharing. But is there a, is there a time frame? Yeah, there is a time frame because I you know I was going to say the direct answer to your question is the roadmap is the output of you know the 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 major tangible output of this group. Uh, and we do have a timeline. Uh, there are a couple of things driven um, by, uh, you know, by the international community. Uh, you know, 3G was IMT 2000, 4G was IMT 2010 from uh, the ITUR. And as you can imagine, we're working right now on uh, IMT 2030. 
Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the ITU process is looking for inputs throughout the course of this year. Uh, and, uh, you know, we really, I wouldn't, I don't want to, you know, have the pessimistic we're coming from behind, uh, but, uh, you know, the EU Horizon 2020 program, the uh, 6G flagship program, uh, there's been a lot of investment already going on in uh, Europe and in China. And I think now uh, North America, you know, kind of we've woken up the bear and, uh, you know, this initiative uh, is really uh, an answer to that. And we believe uh, we'll come up with some superior, uh, you know, requirements and needs that we can, uh, you know, bake into the, the global standards. Awesome. Well, first of all, congratulations once again. And uh, we look forward to uh, following the initiatives. Uh, there are always, you know, great learnings from, from initiatives like these. Um, you touched upon areas like energy efficiency, uh, spectrum sharing. Those are all coveted areas uh, of innovation that are needed uh, to drive uh, the mass adoption of of, of 60. So, Eric, we're, we're, we're uh, way beyond the time. I told you that uh, in the beginning that I try to keep it in 30 minutes, but I love <laughs> the discussion and it's already 45 minutes. Uh, because our audience is is enterprise, um, I, I try to focus the uh, the responses to help enterprises understand, you know, the gaps, the alignment gaps. If we have to close this out, and you are sitting in the boardroom with enterprise CIOs and business leaders, um, what would your advice be to them in terms of their wireless strategy? What what should they you know, start thinking about, or if they have worries about, what would be your word of wisdom to them? Yeah, uh, you know, as we saw on the, you know, the pure enterprise uh, IT personal productivity side, the, uh, you know, advent of wireless uh, and the advent, like, and, and again, back, uh, Ashish, to your and my uh, backgrounds, you know, voice over IP, the fact that you just move the telephone to the other office and plug it in and it just works. You don't need to do a move add and change to your PBX. And with the wireless network, you know, the, the user can move their laptop around, uh, you know, bring it into the conference room. They don't need to plug in and, you know, do a whole host of stuff to get it up and running. You know, imagine, you know, this now on the production floor. So I think, you know, wireless, uh, definitely one of the big uh, promises of 5G is in the industrial Internet of Things, uh, you know, removing the, the wiring from, from the production floor, I think uh, will, will make a huge impact. Uh, likewise, and this is why, like, uh, a number of exchanges are strongly urging uh, public companies, at least, to have someone on their board who has a cybersecurity background. Uh, and that's because uh, we're greatly increasing the attack surface. Uh, so, so I think, uh, you know, boards uh, and senior management, C-level management, uh, do need to be very aware of uh, uh, cybersecurity uh, to me, the Colonial Pipeline incident, uh, you know, it was terrible. 
but I think now nobody can say it can never happen to me and nobody can say, you know, why do I need to care? Uh, so I think those two things, you know, there's this great opportunity uh, that can be afforded uh, to the enterprise by wireless. Uh, and, um, you know, again, that cyber comment is not about wireless specifically, uh, you know, public companies uh, and responsible private companies do need to be very aware of cyber. But uh, as we become more and more connected in, in not just our information technology, but our operational technology, we, we have to be mindful of the risks as well. Absolutely. No, that's, a, that's a very valid point. Well, Eric, it's a pleasure always to speak to you. And uh, thanks once again for your time. Ashish, thank you so much uh, for, for having me on and uh, I hope it can be uh, helpful and, and, and talk with you all again. Absolutely. We'll stay in touch. Yeah. Bye. Bye. Great discussion, Eric. Thanks for all the great work at the White House and Spectrum Innovation and congratulations on the program director role at the NextG Alliance. We certainly hope that the future investments in shared spectrum models will drive entrepreneurship and operationalization of 5G at DoD will instill confidence in the private sector. It has been a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks everyone for listening. Please subscribe to the Alignment Podcast on your favorite platform. We hope you will continue the conversation by asking questions and sharing your thoughts on the evolving role of 5G in private networks. Feel free to reach out to me at ashish.jain at kairospulse.com or drop me a note on my LinkedIn. Until next time, as I always say, get vaccinated and stay safe.